We started a series of messages a little while back entitled Revolutionary. And we took a little pause last week so that you could get a, a bigger taste of missions. And I hope that you had an opportunity to do that and, and to enjoy listening to Haley Garrett and to the Beardens and to all those other things that are taking place in the life of the church and those other emphases that we have. But we want to continue that series of messages today. But I want to begin by sharing with you something that some of you know full well, and that is our mission statement. It's located in there in your handout. It's up there on the screen for you. The mission statement of Grace Fellowship says this. It's very simple, straightforward. Grace Fellowship exists to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to know why we're here, that is why we're here. We want to bring glory to God, which you've already sung about this morning, and we want to do so by doing what he's called us to do. Jesus said, if you love me, You'll, you'll obey my commands. You'll do what I, I, I've asked you to do. And so here we are in this, this, this relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we brought people into it. And we bring glory to God by sharing his grace, his goodness, the good news of Jesus with the world. With the desire to see other people come to embrace Jesus Christ. To enter into a real relationship with God to be changed by that relationship. I've always said, and today's a perfect illustration of it, any of these new parents, you ask them, especially if they're first-time parents, does having a baby move in change your life? Well, I hear a lot of murmuring. Yes, of course it changes your life. It changes everything when a baby moves in. Well, what about when Jesus moves in? You see, there's a life change, and it should be, I won't say natural, it's supernatural. But it should happen. It should be the normal experience for the Christian that our lives begin to change. Now, there's some of you out there with some some great testimonies of how you came to believe in Jesus Christ, but you went through a a period of, of slow or no growth for years and years and years, and then finally... Finally, the light dawned. Finally, something clicked. Finally, the Holy Spirit penetrated and you recognized that there's more to the Christian life than showing up on Sundays, putting a little money in the offering plate. There's more to the Christian life than just checking off the list that I've attended, that people should see something change in me other than my car is not at home on Sunday mornings. That they should see a difference in my attitude, a difference in my actions. This is the life change that we want to see in every believer. And we've incorporated into our mission statement. And our responsibility as a church family then is to provide resources and opportunities to help encourage that growth. To, to, to provide for it. To make the soil fertile. And then to celebrate when it happens. To rejoice when it happens. This transformation, folks, is not something that is accomplished by your own willpower. Boy, I tell you, if willpower were enough for us, we'd all be thin and muscular, wouldn't we? If willpower were enough, we all know willpower only takes you so far. You know, you can read, you can read the little engine that could all day long and, and try to adopt that willpower. It only gets you so far. What we need 
is a spiritual power. What we need is a supernatural power. As the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer, he empowers a Christian. This is what the Holy Spirit does to repent of sin, to flee from temptation, to stand against the devil, to love one's neighbor, to serve with humility, to share the gospel, and to worship with passion. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life or attempting in your life right now. He wants to bring about that change, that transformation, so that worship is not another place you have to go, but that worship is an attitude of life that you come to celebrate with other people on Sunday morning. That sharing Jesus is not something that you have to do because you're taking an evangelism class. But sharing Jesus is something that happens because there's a love of God in you that when you see someone who's apart from Christ, you want to bring them into the family of faith. You have a longing, a desire, a burning zeal to see that person come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And all these areas of our lives that we've just mentioned here, All these things are things that the Holy Spirit does in you. It's not just a decision, a a resolution that you make on January 1st. It's a commitment to allow God to do in you what you cannot do in and of yourself. When you surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord, there begins a radical reorientation of your priorities, your passions, and your purpose. God begins to change everything. You begin to adopt the attitude that John the Baptist had. When John says, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Or the attitude that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we begin to adopt adopt that kind of an attitude, then we are creating an environment for the Holy Spirit to bring about tremendous change in our lives. A revolution begins in our hearts, and it changes everything. When Jesus came, he did not come to rubber stamp the status quo. He did not come to pat everyone on the shoulder and say, hey, good work, keep it up. His coming, though it was long expected, was not at all what was expected. Jesus, as I said a couple of weeks ago, did not come to be the Messiah that people wanted, but the Messiah that people desperately needed. And when he came, he would not be manipulated. He would not be controlled. He was never driven by his ego but always by the glory of his father. He didn't fear for his life because he came to lay his life down. He was exactly who the prophets said he would be. And he made that clear from the very start. The first recorded message, sermon by Jesus, took place after his baptism and his time of being tempted in the wilderness. And he goes back, he goes back to his own hometown, to his home synagogue. He goes in as an adult. And, and we read that as he was there in his synagogue, he stood up and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now you need to understand that 
that they did their worship services a little bit different. The, the mature men would have the opportunity to read and to uh, perhaps make a comment or two on the Scripture as God had led them to do. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. This is not an uncommon thing, but he stood, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he began to read from it. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if Jesus had stopped there and said amen, the people would have patted him on the back and said, what a good boy. If Jesus had only made a few comments about how this relates to the coming of the Messiah, not just to the prophet Isaiah, but to the Messiah who's to come, and how how much he's looking forward to that Messiah coming one day, the people would have applauded him and said, what a good message, what a good boy. But Jesus didn't stop there. In verses 20 and 21, we read, Then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus declared that day was revolutionary. He did not simply say that he hoped the Messiah would one day come. Instead, he said, I am he. And quite frankly, there were few who could accept it. And you can understand why. They'd seen this boy grow up. He was hometown, homegrown. They'd seen him following his daddy to the workshop of a carpenter. They'd probably seen some of the first things that Jesus had had made, carved out from wood. And perhaps even in their homes at that moment, they had a a wooden bowl or a wooden cup, perhaps a a piece of furniture or ornamentation that Jesus himself had crafted with his hands. They knew him to be pious. They knew him to be good. They knew him to be holy. They knew him to be faithful. But for him to say, I am the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about a long, long time ago that simply did not compute. They expected a Messiah, but they never expected it would be Jesus. When we started this series, I specifically said that when Jesus came to be a revolutionary, he didn't come in the sense that one would come with swords and spears or or guns and, and tanks. He didn't come in an effort to overthrow governments. It wasn't a political kind of revolution. But instead, what we said is that who Jesus was as a revolutionary fits exactly with what the dictionary says a revolutionary is. Revolutionary, if you look it up, says constituting or bringing about a major or fundamental change. Isn't that what we've been talking about already this morning? That is precisely what he came to do. Not to rubber stamp the status quo and just say, keep it up, you're doing well. But instead, he came to change everything. Jesus did not come to be put in a precast Messiah mold. He came to fulfill what the Father had revealed to the prophets so long ago. 
And when he called people to follow him, his calling was no less revolutionary. And that's why I'd like us to focus the remainder of our attention this morning. We considered how revolutionary his death and resurrection were the first week. Today, we want to consider how revolutionary his call to follow him was, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's called the Beatitudes. We'll find it in Matthew chapter 5. Beatitudes means the blesseds. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Matthew 5. If not, it'll be up here on the screen. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you have it, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's true and holy word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, thank you for this word and its transforming power. In Jesus' name, amen. The word blessed or blessed has sometimes been translated by the word happy. And that's not a terrible translation because in a sense it is happy. But because of the connotations that we give happy, then it's probably not a good word for us to use. Because happy for us is when things go well. When you unwrap that Christmas gift and it's exactly what you asked for, then you're happy. If you unwrap that Christmas gift and it's socks and underwear, then you're not quite so happy. And so happy for us is kind of subjective. It depends on the circumstances. And so we're not going to translate it as happy. We want to translate it as blessed. Blessed means that you have the favor of God. That's what it means. And obviously that should make you happy. But what we need to understand is that in their thinking, and sometimes in the thinking of people in our culture today, being blessed and having the favor of God means that you're wealthy and healthy. And if you're not wealthy and you're not healthy, there's something wrong with you other than you're poor and sick. That God's not blessing you. You don't have the favor of God in your life. And so we don't want to get confused to think the same thing that they thought. That to be blessed means that you're healthy and wealthy. And if you're not, somehow God's favor is not on your life. Jesus turned that way of thinking upside down. Did you notice who he said were blessed? Look at this list real quickly with me this morning. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, 
Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Why not the rich? Why not the well-fed? Why not the happy-go-lucky? Why not those at the top of the ladder? Why not the ambitious? Why not the high achievers? Certainly they look like the favor of God is on their lives. But perhaps God wants to give us so much more than we can simply achieve by hard work, long-term planning, practice skills, and determination. Maybe God has something more in store for us. And so what I want to share with you this morning is this. Those who are truly blessed are those who have their needs met by God and not by self-effort or hard work. Those are the ones who are blessed. Those who rely on him for everything. And I become so convicted when I see this because, quite frankly, it is easy to be self-reliant. It is easy to count on self. It is easy not to pray. It is easy not to rely on God. It is easy not to ask for his help, but to say, I can do this myself. Have you ever seen that attitude in a toddler? You want to help the toddler get, tra- get dressed? No. I want to do it myself. We carry that attitude into our own spiritual lives. Where God says, let me help. Let me walk with you. Let me be the source of your joy, the source of your peace, the source of your hope, the source of your contentment, the source of your blessings. Let it be from me. And we go, no. I want to do it myself. That attitude is utterly contrary to what we read here. And we don't have time to go into depth in all of these, but let me just give you a quick run through so that you understand what these mean. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty and they know that in giving all they have to God, they haven't lost a thing. They inherit it all. Those who mourn are blessed because they have a comfort from God that is reinforced by an eternal hope, something you can't take away. You have someone you love who who loves the Lord who dies. Guess what? They're just waiting for you. You haven't lost them. The meek are, are, are blessed because they don't feel that they have to pridefully toot their own horns and say, hey, look at me. But instead, they trust that the Lord will exalt them in his time. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because God is desirous to reveal himself and his will to all who seek him. If you look for him, he's not hiding. The merciful are blessed because, in not, because they don't give people what they always deserve, but instead reflect the attitude of God who didn't give me what I deserve, who didn't give you what you deserve. The pure in heart are blessed because though they have not enjoyed all the sensual pleasures that this world might have to offer, they have the certainty of beholding The face of God. In other words, what they give up here won't matter 
when they stand face to face with their creator. The peacemakers are blessed because they show they belong to God who sent his son to bring peace through the cross. The opposite of peacemakers would be troublemakers. Churches need peacemakers, not troublemakers. Our community needs peacemakers, not troublemakers. Our world needs peacemakers, not troublemakers. And the persecuted are blessed because they've given themselves fully to Jesus and his mission. And though they may suffer for their faith, even die for their faith, they have an eternity with a Savior that cannot be taken from them no matter what. And so when we're told to humble ourselves when we follow Christ, when we read these Beatitudes and we understand that the attitudes expressed there are so much different than the world, what we see is that self-promotion is not important Promoting ourselves is not important. Jesus said, be careful that you don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. We find that the accumulation of wealth is not all important. Jesus said, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me take just a moment to say this. Last week we got to worship in the church that I first pastored. And one of the most touching parts of the service was not the singing or the preaching or anything else. But it was the time of offering. Because the pastor there led by example. He and his family have committed to give twice as much to Lottie Moon as they spent on Christmas gifts. I was convicted. Because what he was saying is, my checkbook shows my priorities. And fancy meals and fine clothes aren't all that matter either. For Jesus said, don't worry, saying, what shall I eat or drink or what shall I wear? The pagans run after all these things, and your Father in heaven knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We are in the midst of the most commercialized holiday on the calendar year. And in the midst of that, our priorities, our passions, and our purpose are either going to be shaped by the world or shaped by Jesus Christ. The call of Scripture is clear. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For a revolution... To sweep across this community. Let me tell you where it starts. It starts here. It starts in the heart of each one of us. Who experience that spiritual transformation. We must choose. What or who will shape our attitudes and our actions. 
We must choose to stop conforming to the pattern of the world, to stop being pressed into the mold of the world. And instead, to allow God to transform us. In other words, if there's going to be a spiritual revolution, we have to willingly, with our whole hearts, join it.